Till I'm Tiptoed You Dot com The podcast about pop culture Black history and spirituality Yeah It's about to be a great vibe Dr. Tip Gonna take it away Till I'm Tiptoed You Hey y'all, hey, thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Them to Told You. I am so excited to be back with you today, and I've got some things to talk about. Um, I don't want today to be heavy, but it's going to be a little bit heavy just because of what's going on. Um, but I wanna I wanna address that at the end. So I wanna talk about um, the Amber Geiger case. I want to talk about what happened in Texas uh, last night or yesterday, depending on when you're listening to the podcast. I want to talk about Kanye and Howard and Du Bois' notion of the talented tenth and how now I'm on the fence about that. So let's just jump right in. So many of us have been watching the Amber Geiger case where this woman walked into a black man's apartment as he was watching ESPN and eating ice cream and shot him. Now we were, Oh, well, I, I, I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I was pleasantly pleased that she was uh, found guilty. I was lesser than pleased that she only received 10 years, only five years have to be served. So we're looking at about five years before she gets out. And I am even more disgusted that the the lead witness in that case, um, another black man, has been lynched as a result of his testimony. Now, I know that the police are saying he was shot as a result of a drug deal, but the story isn't even, it doesn't even make sense. All right. So we're supposed to believe that some other black men drove from Alexandria, Virginia to Dallas, Texas to buy some weed. From a man who lived in the same apartment complex with a police officer, a man uh, to buy from a man who was in the national news because of his testimony in a court case. We're supposed to believe that you drove all that way to get some weed from someone who was that visible in the moment. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. But but beyond all of that. Um, I think those of us who have watched the video of the the um, sentencing hearing and things like that, where the judge is hugging this woman and, and commiserating with her over having to serve time, and the video of the jurors saying they gave her lesser time because that's what the victim would have wanted, as if they knew the victim personally. That's a whole nother story. And then we watched the brother hug the victim and the father talking about how he wants to be the victim's friend. I'm saying victim here. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying victim. The murderer's friend. Uh, but that's how she was being treated in the courtroom, though. This Amber Geiger was being treated as if she were the victim, right? That th- This woman who broke into a man's home and shot him in cold blood is being treated as a victim by this judge who gives her a Bible, right? It- it's just, and what is more disgusting to me than almost than those displays in the courtroom are the number of black folk that have the nerve to be defending those displays. It is not, I don't know what Bible they read, right? Because it is convenient for Christians like that to act like the old Testament doesn't exist when it's, when it's necessary, but they want to condemn other people to hell for their lifestyles. They go straight to the old Testament. I'm not, Jesus flipped tables in the, in the new Testament. So it's not like you have to be soft 
and allow people to abuse you because you're Christian. And that is what you're pretending to do. And that kind of Christianity is very dangerous. And I would also argue that that kind of Christianity is very new. It is very new for black people to feel like you don't have to defend yourself, that it is Christian not to defend oneself, that it is Christian to allow oneself to be abused. That's not Christianity. If you believe that God is within you, if you believe that you are made in God's image, when you allow other people to mistreat you, you are allowing other people to mistreat God. That doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. And so I'm completely disgusted by that. I just want us to pay attention to that case, uh, especially because yesterday we have the the um, lynching of Atiana Coquise Jefferson in her home in Texas, also in Texas, Fort Worth this time. This was a sister who was at home with her eight-year-old nephew playing, um, and the neighbor, another black man, called for the police to come do a wellness check because her front door was open and there were lights on at 2 a.m. Now, I have no fault against the brother calling the police if you think your sister is in danger. I don't have a problem with that. I know some of you all are out there blaming him. (sighs) That's a tough road to hoe. You know what I'm saying? That even those of us who are distrustful of the police, if I thought someone was harming someone, I probably would call the police. Right? Right now, we don't have an alternative system in place. There should be. But we don't have an alternative system in place. And so if the brother really did think that this woman was threatened, that that house was threatened, that the people in it were threatened in some way, form or fashion, I don't blame him for calling the police. I think in hindsight, he now knows that he probably wouldn't do it again. I think some of us, after watching that case, would be more careful than calling a non-emergency number. Um, But he called for a wellness check, y'all. Don't blame him. The blame is solely on the officer who, although was called to do a wellness check, didn't go to the front door. Like, that's where the blame sits. You, you've been called to make sure someone is okay. That's not an emergency call. It shouldn't be handled the same way. Why didn't you just ring the front doorbell? Right? That kind of just, it doesn't make sense to me that you would be walking around the perimeter of her home shining a light through a window. Can you put yourself in those shoes, right? You're inside playing with your eight-year-old nephew in the middle of the night and you see a flashlight shine through your window, not in the front of the house, you know what I'm saying? Shine through your window and someone tells you to put your hands up. I'm not sure any of us would comply because we would be shocked. Like there's a part of your brain that does flight or fright excuse me, fight or flight. It also has a third impulse, which is to freeze. So a lot of us just physiologically would have frozen in that moment. In less than four seconds, the sister was shot. What is that? That's not the brother next door's fault. That's not her fault. This is, it is a problem, a systematic annihilation, attempted annihilation of a people in the United States. It's genocide at the hands of the blue. And we have to be very careful of that. And we got to call it what it is. And we have to be able to, to link these things together, to see patterns in Texas, no less, where you just finished this case. This sister wasn't even safe in our home, y'all. How many of us are not safe in our homes? Can you imagine? I can't imagine if somebody shone a light in my side window at two o'clock in the morning and yelled at me from outside my house. One, I might not even understand what you're saying because you're yelling to me through a closed window. But 
what am I supposed to do? Like there is no, there's no accurate, appropriate response that would not get you killed in that instance. What are you supposed to do? Man, look at here. We need an alternative system in place so that if we are worried about one another, we have another system that truly is meant to protect and serve us. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not going to pretend to know what that looks like, but I know this ain't it, chief. I do know that, that this is not quite what we need in this moment. Um, I, I continue to do my reading. I, I, you know, Charles Cobbs, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. Um, Negroes with guns. Uh, what are some of the other books, y'all? I, I'm really trying to figure out what this looks like. And we also have to remember, outside of the vilification and the propaganda that has been written about the Black Panther Party, we have to remember what the roots of that party are. It's about self-defense, right? The whole name of the party is the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Because this is what they were trying to do, was to protect Black lives from police that would brutalize us and, and, and murder us. And so there has to be lessons for us in the history that we can adapt and make appropriate for the contemporary, but that requires work and it requires disciplined study and it requires, it requires, um, implementation, right? It's not enough for scholars to sit at the table and document this history if there aren't enough of us to try to make the history live in the present. Um, some of you know, some of you may not know, um, I'm a member of an organization that's now a 501c3. I'm very happy to note. If you want to give us a donation, send me an inbox uh, at Dr. Tell to told you. But I am a founding member of Teaching in the Urban South, also called Titus. Titus was birthed from trying to see if a model we found in the segregated South. So the work of a historian, right? She, she uncovered the secret network of black educators whose sole purpose was to, to create, maintain and protect quality education for black students in, in pursuit of a more equitable society overall for everybody. Right. And we wanted to see if we could take what we learned from the history and implement it in the present. And I'm here to tell you, we were largely successful. The model works. Right. It, it requires some tweaking because now we have the Internet and things like that. They, they didn't have then. Right. We're, we can be more in touch than even they were then. Um, and so it requires tweaking for the current context. But the history can live in today. But it requires disciplined inquiry into the past and implementation. So why am I saying that? I'm saying those of us who are academicians that do the historical research and study, need to be putting the lessons into the hands of activists, grassroots activists that can make these things so again, right? It's one thing to write the history in a book that only other academics are going to read. It's another hand to make the, the book easily digestible and put it in the hands of community members who are willing and able to do the work of making it so. Right. And there have to be those of us who kind of straddle that fence and live in both worlds that can act as a, a as a connector between the world of academia and the world of grassroots activism. Like that needs to be our role, which takes me to the new, new thing I wanted to talk about, which is Kanye West on the campus of Howard University. I am disgusted. 
Like I'm trying to figure out how that works. How does that work that you allow Kanye and his pro-Trump self to be on your black ass campus? I, I'm trying to I'm trying to un, un, unpack that. I really am trying to unpack that. And he had the nerve to be chanting abolish the 13th, which is the amendment, by the way, if you don't know, is the one that ends slavery. All right, so let me complicate this to those people who only know Kanye's side of the story and right-wing propaganda around the 13th Amendment. The argument that Kanye levies and that some people will support is that the 13th Amendment um, says, it essentially says it ends slavery except as a crime, as punishment for a crime, right? And so when they say about the 13th, they pretend that this is about prison reform and abolitionism, but it's not about prison abolitionism because, again, that is the 13th Amendment ends chattel slavery, right? So it's not like he's chanting abolish part of the 13th, reword the 13th. He's saying abolish the 13th Amendment, y'all. That's the one that guarantees our freedom, except as punishment for a crime, but it guarantees our freedom. That's the closest we get to guaranteed freedom in the Constitution as black folk. Right. So here's what what that brings me back to what I was just speaking on. I am troubled by how we allow celebrities to use their platforms to speak about things they asses don't know about. Listen, Okay, so a few weeks ago in Atlanta was the revolt summit that Diddy put together. And um, there were clips circulating around where Killer Mike was saying there was a period, if any period in U.S. history is when America was great, it was right after the um, Civil War during Reconstruction and blah, 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 blah. Listen, let me tell you something. A little bit of learning is a dangerous thing because you have to tell the whole story. Killer Mike is a capitalist. He's very much like Booker T. Washington. Um, And... In that, he is speaking some truth, but the danger is that the truth is not the whole story and therefore is dangerous, right? So when we talk about Reconstruction as a time when America was great for Black people, what we are forgetting to note and what he did not note is that the period immediately following the Civil War that we classify as Radical Reconstruction, different from the rest of Reconstruction period, Radical Reconstruction is when the Union Army was still physically located in the South, meaning that many of these Black business ventures had armed protection from Union soldiers. And therefore, Black folk were able to amass large amounts of political and economic power in the South. You cannot not pay attention to the fact that the Union Army was there to protect those interests. Okay, so this is what I mean by you got to have a scholar who may share the stage with a killer Mike to say, yes, brother Mike, you are absolutely correct. But here's the rest of the story. And we cannot implement what was happening in radical reconstruction in the contemporary period when we don't have an army. (laughs) Right. So this is this is my frustration with a lot of these people whose only research comes from the Hidden Colors videos and from YouTube videos. Um, 
that they have pieces of the truth and those pieces can be incredibly dangerous if they don't include the context within which that little piece of truth is embedded because the context may switch everything you need to do. Let me go back to the practical example of what we call the historical African-American pedagogical model, that that historical Jim Crow South model I told you we were able to implement in the contemporary period. What we found was that there was a need for secrecy in the model, in the original model, right? I can't teach you the model without letting you know that a lot of these black educators understood that their lives and their livelihoods would be in jeopardy for participating in a model such as this, right? I can't try to get you to implement a model without telling you the whole truth because your implementation of the model may require some of that context from before. So when Killer Mike is talking about radical reconstruction period, we need to know these were people who were physically protected. And if we're not ready to do that, we cannot implement all that was done under radical reconstruction. But you need an intellectual to say that, not a celebrity. Now, am I saying that you can't be both a celebrity and an intellectual? I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that requires discipline work. And a lot of these brothers with the platform aren't evidencing that. Let me say this also about the revolt summit that irritated me. And that was that Candace Owens was on the stage. It's the same thing with Kanye being at Howard. When you allow these people who are obviously full of propaganda and mistruth, presence on your platform, what you are doing is lending them credibility and, and um, oh, what word do I want to use? You're validating them. You're validating them. When Kanye can come, did, did you hear what he said when he got on campus? So much for cancel culture? Y'all couldn't cancel me? You see that Messiah syndrome complex going on that he got? But that's because you gave him part of your platform and therefore legitimized what comes out of his mouth. You gave him validity because he's on an HB, a well-known mecca of black intellectual tradition. And therefore, it validates him in the minds of some people and in his own mind. When you give Candace Owens a platform, and I'm sure you paid her for that. I wonder who else could have been in that seat. It don't have to be Tiffany, but it should be some person who has dedicated him or herself to the discipline. That chick ain't even got no degree. And I'm not saying a degree makes you learn it. I'm not saying that. But a degree does demonstrate that you got the discipline to sit your ass in a seat and read a book. Okay, what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. So here's what I wanted to say about uh, the talented 10th, right? So Du Bois at one point in his career must have felt much like I feel today. I don't even know why I'm out of breath, but let me take it down a notch. But um, Du Bois must have felt much like I feel today at one point in his intellectual career. He talked about how it was going to be the talented 10th, those of us who had done the discipline study to take us into liberation, into freedom, right? To solve the Negro problem. Later on in his life, he came to the understanding that that was, it's not going to work like that. It's going to be the guiding 100. It won't be the talented 10th. I understand his frustration when he came up with the idea of the talented 10th. But like I said a minute ago, 
I also understand what he's meaning when he says the guiding 100. What it's going to take, y'all, is that we stop shunning intellectual work as useless. It has a place. I remember um, when I was working on my doctorate, we were sitting around a table at Emory and we had a visiting professor from Morehouse, right? The class was black educational history. And this brother asked us (laughs) why, if we were so militant, we were sitting around that table instead of being in the street burning tires. And I looked at him and I said, us sitting around the table, disrupting conversations in these kind of spaces, writing the things we write about, that is our way of burning tires in the street. See, when you are systematically oppressed, it requires a systematic response to that oppression. What is a system? I've talked about this on the podcast before. A system is a group of things that are working in different ways for a common goal. Your circulatory system in your body, for example. Your heart doesn't do what the capillaries do, what the veins do, what the arteries do, right? They all have different functions. They all look different, but they are all necessary for blood to circulate around your body and keep your black ass alive. It is going to require intellects to be as invested in our liberation as the grassroots activists in order for all of us to get free. And my problem is that we are so busy pointing the finger at one another and saying that part is not useful, that we are not working together towards that common goal of liberation. We are distracted from the common goal of liberation because we're on stage trying to one up one another and ain't nobody on the stage done no academic work. How much does it take to get free? How how hard are you willing to work to get free? Are you willing to read a book? Like I said, some of these people watching these YouTube videos and they say they've done research. This whole hashtag, hashtag ADOS bullshit is based on not understanding the history that is clearly recorded. The history that the elders who worked on reparations have, it's documented and the elders are still here and your black ass won't sit down and talk to them because you're too busy watching YouTube videos. Because you're afraid of the intellectual discipline work that is sometimes necessary to connect activism to intellectual scholarship. And I'm not going to only blame the activists. I'm also going to blame the scholars who aren't seeking to be connected to the real world. You sit up in your lab somewhere, in a library somewhere, you only come down to interview people for 10, 15 minutes. You go back, analyze code data and write stuff that ain't never going to affect nobody's life in real life. That's not how we're going to get free. It's not. It's just not. We have to be in collaboration, strategic collaboration with one another. It's going to take the scholar in concert with the activist. And again, there have to be some people who straddle that fence and do a little bit of both. Everybody has to have the common goal of freedom. That's the other problem I have with this hashtag ADOS. Their goal is not freedom. Their goal is economic. 
Now, that doesn't mean that freedom doesn't include economic freedom. But if your goal is the economics of it and you never talk about anything else, like maternal health care, all you're worried about is a check? Okay, so let me go. Let me go to the next thing I wanted to talk about, because, again, I'm all out of breath and shit. Let me tell you. Racism will kill you simply because it exhausts you. James Baldwin um, said once, and I'm paraphrasing that to be relatively conscious in the United States um, is to be in a constant state of rage. That has a very negative effect on your physical health. My blood pressure is the highest it's ever been. My A1C is completely out of whack because I eat and and treat my stress with food. Racism is physically killing me because I don't necessarily have all the release that I need. Monday, I'm, I'm calling a new therapist Monday. Right, I've got some some health um, issues I'm going to use to try to address some of this. Right, I'm starting up back up my yoga practice because I recognize that my self care is political. Audrey Lord told us that. Right, it is revolutionary to take care of yourself. When I think about some of my academic virtual role models, Barbara Christian, Audrey Lord, women like that. They died early. Lucille Clifton. They died early, almost always of cancer. Their bodies ate themselves from the inside out because this shit is too heavy to carry alone. It's too heavy not to confront it, right? If we live through our day like racism does not have a detrimental effect on our physical person and we just try to eat it, like, and when I mean by eat it, I mean absorb all of that. We just absorb it. And there's no strategic release of it. There's no strategic black joy. There's no strategic love making. There's no strategic uh, going to the gun range and, and just litting shit off because you got to let it go, right? That we have to do these things so that our bodies will be here tomorrow to fight again another day. This is what I I believe that Toni Morrison meant when she talked about the danger of racism being distraction. It distracts you from your ability to to thrive, to be completely happy, whole, and healthy. Like that's part of what liberation means. It means to be well and free. Free to take care of yourself. And if we are distracted from that, we're not being all that we can be. My creative self is not at 100% if my blood pressure is high. You understand what I'm saying? So my ability to create strategies that can help liberate us are hindered. So even if you don't love yourself enough to take care of yourself, love your people enough to take care of yourself so that you are operating at optimal capacity. Be healthy, y'all. It's how we're going to get free. And I'm going to cut there today because, like I said, I'm all out of breath. I can feel my heart racing. Y'all, it's so much, so much, so much work to do, and we got to do it. All right? (sighs) Y'all make it a good one. If you have any questions, comments, 
or considerations for me to give, um, please send them to Dr. Tip at tellemtiptoldyou.com. I'm happy to hear from you. Also, don't forget that you can go to the website, www.tellemtiptoldyou.com and sign on to be a podcast guest. I look forward to speaking with you next time. Y'all be good. Tell them Tip Told You. Bye.